colleges are only obligated legally to provide access, not success, right? And so think about the students and the parents of those students who are coming out of that environment where everything has been about how to help my child or how to help me be successful. And now I'm on a college campus and you're saying that all you really have to do for me is provide me kind of fair and equitable access to these uh, opportunities and then I'm on my own. And so, you know, that, that idea of, of the cliff is really just crucial. And so we see a lot of students uh, crash and burn in their first year because they are so unprepared for it. Hello and welcome to Student Affairs Now, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I am your host, Heather Shea. Today we are discussing how we can better meet the needs of autistic and neurodivergent students on college campuses. I am joined by several scholars and practitioners and the executive director of the College Autism Network. Before I introduce my guest today, I'm going to share a little bit more about our podcast and today's sponsors. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to our profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays, and you can find us at studentaffairsnow.com on YouTube or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Today's episode is sponsored by Simplicity. A true partner, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life with technology platforms that empower institutions to make data-driven decisions. And this episode is also sponsored by Vector Solutions, formerly EverFi, the trusted partner for 2,000 plus colleges and universities. Vector Solutions is a standard of care for student safety, well-being, and inclusion. So stay tuned to the end of the podcast for more information about these sponsors. So as I mentioned, I'm your host, Heather Shea, joining from the ancestral homelands of the Anishinaabe Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Ottawa, and Potawatomi peoples, otherwise known as East Lansing, Michigan, um, and home to the campus of Michigan State University where I work. Um, this university resides on land seated in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. And as a land grant institution, we feel like we have an even deeper responsibility to complicate and explore the relationship between our institution and the land. I am so excited about uh, this episode today and so grateful for the four folks who have joined me um, to talk a little bit more and share their knowledge about autistic and neurodivergent students. Um, and so I'm gonna have each of you kind of share a little bit about um, yourselves and how your work intersects with this topic. Um, and I'm going to start with John. Welcome, John. Thank you, Heather. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is John Caldora. I use he, him pronouns. Uh, I am a disability accommodations consultant with the Disability Resource Center at the University of Kentucky uh, here in Lexington, uh, Kentucky. Um, so uh, being a DRC consultant involves wearing many hats, but the hats that most relate to this episode are I coordinate our neurodiversity outreach efforts called the uh, Neurodiverse Educational and Social Initiative, or NESI, like the Loch Ness Monster. 
Uh, that that's our mascot, the Lockpack. I love monster. it. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I also am the primary accommodations consultant for uh, our autistic college students. And last but definitely not least, I myself am autistic. So uh, that's kind of uh, what brought me into this space today. Thank you so much for being here, John. I'm I'm so grateful for your time, um, Lee. I should have started with you because you were the one who invited all of the rest of these <laughs> folks. So thank you so much for bringing us together. Oh, um, it, it is my pleasure. Uh, these are uh, wonderful people that I, I love uh, being with. Um, so my name is Lee Burdett Williams and I am, uh, I use she, her pronouns and I am a longtime student affairs professional. Um, kind of grew up in the traditional sense of student activities to a dean of students role to a um, vice president's role. Uh, and then kind of took a sideways move um, that landed me here as the uh, director of the College Autism Network, uh, which is a nonprofit organization that supports training, research and advocacy efforts focused on the experiences of autistic and other neurodivergent college students. Uh, we help connect campus-based and independent programs with one another. We help colleges and universities build their internal capacity for supporting autistic students through professional development. And we have a strong research focus that you'll hear about a bit today. Um, and my three co-panelists, Emily, John, and Brett, are all active members of CAN, as we call the College Autism Network. And we're going to post the link to your website in our show notes today so we can make sure folks can access that and, and look at all of the amazing resources that you all provide. Um, thank you so much for being here and for bringing together this group. Uh, Brett, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Heather. Uh, glad to be here. Glad to be with my colleagues and friends as well. Um, it's nice to see everybody. Uh, my name is Brett Rainan-Nackman. Uh, I am uh, he, him, his pronouns. Um, I'm an assistant professor of adult and lifelong learning at the University of Arkansas. And I'm also director of research for the College Autism Network. So I've been part of the CAN leadership team for almost six years now. It's been a journey. It's hard to believe. And um, uh, all of us were recently in Nashville for our College Autism Summit. So it's great to reconnect. And um, I am a, an autistic self-advocate. Um, much of my research uh, focuses on autism and higher education, as well as disability more broadly. And it's uh, really important to be able to uh, shed light on the experiences of autistic college students and other stakeholders on campus who can help elevate and honor the experiences of autistic college students. So pleasure to be here today. Thanks so much, Brett. It's great to have you here as well. Yes, you all were together. So this is like a part two to your time together last week. Um, Emily, welcome. Hi, um, I'm Emily Rackclaw, she, her, hers. I'm the director of On Your Market at Marquette University in the very cold Milwaukee, Wisconsin right now. Our program serves autistic and all forms of neurodivergent students who are enrolled at Marquette University. I'm also a licensed professional counselor and a certified rehabilitation counselor as of a week ago, um, and a former special education teacher and a vocational rehabilitation counselor. I'm also an ADHDer. Awesome. So grateful for all of you bringing your experiences and wisdom and perspectives. Um, so just a few months ago, I hosted a, a broader conversation about reframing disability. And so this episode kind of builds upon that topic. We'll link it in the show notes as well. 
Um, but we're really looking at specifically delving into the research training and advocacy for students on the autism spectrum and other neurodivergent college students. Um, so I think we should probably start where we often start with some definitions. What is the language that we're using? How it, And we know that that's always evolving. Um, so Lee, can you define autism? Why is it a spectrum? And what does neurodivergent mean? Um, and what's included in that umbrella term as well? Sure. Um, yeah, that that's a whole uh, podcast in itself. <laughs> yeah. um, let, let me give you the Kind of the short version. The um, version yes. <laughs> uh, one way to define autism is that it's a constellation of characteristics that are hardwired and brain-based that influence social, cognitive, and communication behaviors in particular ways. Um, and you know, we can talk about some what some of those specific characteristics are, um, but uh, I think those will come up through our conversation. And it's considered a spectrum because people demonstrate these characteristics in, in varying degrees. Um, the term neurodivergent refers to an individual whose cognitive learning and social characteristics diverge from the majority of people who are sometimes referred to as neurotypical. Uh, and so when we say that a community or organization is neurodiverse or that neurodiversity is a value within that organization. What it means is that all sorts of learning and thinking approaches are represented, including those of neurodivergent and neurotypical people. Uh, autism is one type of neurodivergence, but there are others. Um, you know, Emily mentioned uh, ADHD. Um, there are uh, sort of varying degrees of uh, varying um, definitions of neurodivergent, but it's really anybody who sort of diverges from what is considered kind of typical. I hope that sort of is the, is a good Cliff Notes version. Yeah. People often say, um, uh, people often confuse neurodiverse and neurodivergent and say a person is neurodiverse, but the way that we um, tr try to distinguish it is that communities or environments are neurodiverse, people are neurodivergent. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes more sense. Um, so I'm really in recognizing that often, you know, this is a hidden, this is hidden, right? We don't necessarily know until a student discloses or shares um, their, uh, their status as a student on the autism spectrum or neurodivergent. Um, so when we think about defining, you know, part of the complexity, I think, is the fact that it's not it's not always evident when we engage and we're going to unpack this in a lot of different ways today, but if you, from your perspective, you know, how do we better adjust our understanding so that we can be more inclusive when we talk about students with disabilities? Is it a disability? Is, is it included in that? And how should we be thinking about that in terms of inclusion? Yeah, that's such a great um, question. and such an important issue that's being talked about a lot, uh, disability versus identity, uh, what, what that means. Um, so one thing that I, <clears throat> the way that I often think about it is there are plenty of people who would, if um, if tested, right, like if, if evaluated, would meet the definition, the clinical definition or diagnosis of autism. 
and they live and they learn and they work and they have families and they function in really positive ways every day. Um, and so that, um, uh, so that's not a disability, right? Um, it's yeah. just a difference. Uh, where I think it crosses the, the line into disability is when the characteristics of autism are an impediment to someone being able to pursue their dreams, their goals, uh, or are disruptive to others who are trying to pursue their dreams or their goals. So on a college campus, we have plenty of students who would meet the definition of autism and they don't get accommodations or they have minimal accommodations and they do fine and maybe they're quirky and maybe people know that something is unusual about them, but it, it, it's not a disabling set of characteristics. Um, but if that student is unable to achieve what they are trying to achieve because of those characteristics, then it moves into the realm of disability. And then I think our focus really shifts to figuring out how to accommodate that student to help them be successful. Um, I think, you know, what the principles design for learning are a really good place to start when we talk about this. If we can design learning experiences that reflect an assumption that everyone in the classroom or residence hall is neurotypical, then you're going to leave a lot of students behind, not just your autistic students. Um, but if you adjust the environment to meet the needs of those students who have formal diagnoses of autism, you're actually going to improve the experience of everyone in the class because you're creating the most universally supportive environment. Mm. That's really powerful. I um, I work in DEI spaces and we often talk about centering the needs of our most marginalized students and that right. that then benefits everyone. Um, that So that, that really resonates for me. Um, yeah. Emily, I'm going to turn to you because I am really curious about um, if, if there's any data on how many students we're talking about on our college and university campuses. How has that population grown and changed over time as as campuses have frankly addressed, you know, services maybe more effectively. Um, and then a little bit about their identities and, and how intersectionality also plays into some of their um, college experiences. Yeah, so like Lee said, there's so many people on college campuses that either aren't registered with the Office of Disability Services or they haven't been tested that would qualify. So I feel like numbers are grossly underrepresented. Um, so I'm not a researcher. Brett knows that I say that a lot. Um, so the number is actually quite difficult to quantify. Mm -hmm. um, so when I started my program, the, the researchers who gave me the data said it was about one in every for every 100 college student entering college was likely on the spectrum. Um, and I don't really, again, I'll take corrections on that. Um, and that was in 2019. Now, as we know, years have gone by and autism rates have increased um, based on diagnostic criteria and access to diagnoses. Um, so I anticipate those numbers are actually gonna start growing over time, not just because of these programs, but because we are people who exist <laughs> and are turning 18 and are, qual and are able to do college. So 
I guess that's a non-answer, but that's the answer to the question, to that part of the question. Yeah. Um, and in terms of intersectionality, um, I can speak for my program specifically. Right now, we're hovering at about 30% of our population that also identifies as LGBTQ+. Um, and I suspect that's similar to other programs around the nation. Um, and because of that actually builds in additional layers of support, additional communities to belong to, um, and just kind of additional people who are who get it that maybe are excluded from populations or excluded from activities or excluded from places. And from what I've seen from students as not being a member of either of those communities is that it actually creates um, a bigger network and a bigger form of belonging that wouldn't maybe otherwise exist. Um, and I think we're also seeing a shift. Uh, Breton is leading a research project called Project Pieces that I'm sure he'll talk about later that I am blessed enough to be part of. Um, we're really trying to identify people who are marginalized in the autistic community in terms of identities, whether that's LGBTQ+, race, ethnicity, um, income background, and we're hoping to kind of get a better idea of what it really looks like out there. That's a, that's fascinating. Um, I also have the opportunity to work in our um, LGBT services office on campus in the Gender and Sexuality Campus Center. Um, and so I'm now thinking about like, how that space really is a as a space that maybe we should be spending a little bit more time considering um, the neurodiversity students. I love it. Yes. Thank you. You brought that for me. Um, so John, we talked a bit about accommodations and I am really interested in academic challenges um, and opportunities, right? Uh, that we see with autistic and neurodivergent students. Um, can you talk a little bit about what some of the biggest ch challenges are and then what are some of the accommodations that either you provide or your campus or that generally are available for students to promote their success? Uh, <clears throat> sure. So uh, something I'll just expand upon that uh, Lee and Emily briefly touched on is, um, first of all, it is difficult in parts of the United States to get a diagnosis of autism. Um, and we especially also see that there is a link where um, historically disenfranchised uh, groups, just because of access to healthcare issues, also are experiencing that even more. So sometimes when students come to us, they will not have documentation of an autism diagnosis. Instead, they will have documentation of some other co-occurring disability. Hmm. Um, for example, depression, anxiety uh, combined with autism are very common. So we can start by giving them accommodations for depression, anxiety, uh, which also covers a lot of what autism uh, affects as well. So the issues vary a lot from student to student. I would say typically though, if we're specifically looking at autism as a diagnosis, we see a lot of issues in the more social parts of uh, a student's academic experience. So group projects or being called on in class um, or uh, being able to present to a large group. Uh, and so, you know, usually when I'm meeting with a student who uh, who has a diagnosis of autism, I will you know, go through those areas with them. Have you had any issues presenting in front of the group? Uh, if you're called on in class, does that produce a fight or flight response? Uh, as well as, uh, you know, also addressing things like, okay, what happens if a student gets overstimulated? Because a lot of how autism impacts students is how they perceive the world around them. So if, you know, you're sitting in a room and you can 
hear the fluorescent lights buzzing and the professor is shouting into a microphone they don't need in a in a in a relatively small lecture hall and you know you have all of these different sensory inputs pushing on you sometimes you need to be able to leave the classroom and make up any work that you missed well you know you take a minute and center yourself uh, so that's another accommodation that we see uh, as well uh, I do think, you know, that autism does have strengths. A lot of our uh, students do come in, you know, having done fairly well in high school or very well in high school. Mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, you do run into that, uh, uh, what I'll call the high school to college cliff. You know, there is mm -hmm. a big gap in expectations. Uh, and so, you know, students who might have developed all of these coping skills and resiliency skills, which were great in high school, they run into additional challenges here. So, you know, we uh, refer them to, uh, we have integrated success coaches on our uh, campus who serve as academic coaches as well, who can help them develop those skills. Uh, another example is if they're registered with the Kentucky Office of Vocational Rehab, uh, we have a partnership with them to provide that. Um, and then uh, another resource that students may want to consider is going to a uh, college or university with a dedicated uh, autism support program, whether it's a smaller one uh, like here at UK that covers a few specific areas or it's a more comprehensive program like On Your Mark at Marquette. What would other folks add um, to what John shared? Thank you. Yeah, when John mentioned that cliff, like that was like, yes, that's exactly a lot of what we see, especially that first year of, oh, well, when I did this in high school, I'm like, yeah, so about that, um, <laughs> that's not going to work here. Um, and just being stocked there, well, I had these coping skills. I'm like, okay, but it's a new environment, new challenges you're facing. Um, like John was saying, it's the classroom environments themselves and at universities is just very different than how they were in high school. Um, so these coping mechanisms that worked well when they were with these groups of people, theoretically, that they've known for a very long time to now this giant group of people, they might not work. Yeah. It's also, um, there's a profound shift in philosophy because of the federal legislation mm -hmm. that governs what's expected and the obligations of high schools uh, and yes. the obligations of college, right? And so in, in high school, the focus, you know, coming out of the IDEA is really about success. What do we have to do to help the student be successful? And so high schools will go to tremendous lengths to help students be successful. Colleges are only obligated legally to provide access, not success, right? And so Think about the students and the parents of those students who are coming out of that environment where everything has been about how to help my child or how to help me be successful. And now I'm on a college campus and you're saying that all you really have to do for me is provide me the kind of fair and equitable access to these uh, opportunities. And then I'm on my own. And so, you know, that that idea of, of the cliff is really just crucial. And so we see a lot of students uh, crash and burn in their first year because they are so unprepared for it. And and we're not, they, they need a different runway than we have provided, but we have overpromised to many of them a level of support that we are not going to provide. And that's a, you know, that's a, an admissions and enrollment issue that we could talk about at another time. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just, 
really heartbreaking. And, you know, and, and as both Emily and John have said, students who would meet the clinical um, uh, criteria for autism, if they've gotten to college, like good on them, they have overcome a lot of challenges and they deserve um, our, our support and our kudos because the world was not made for, for these students. Um, and they have figured out what they've had to figure out to get this far. And to kind of piggyback off of those points too, I think, and we can continue to, I think, uh, explore and interrogate the issue of of so many folks who are who hold a lot of power and who are neurotypical, wielding their inf- not necessarily wielding their influence to support um, autistic neurodivergent folks. So, from the standpoint of a lot of the onus, as I think my colleagues have been alluding to, is put on the student to navigate these structures that, as Lee said, were not built for them. And consequently, I think it reinforces this this uh, paradigm, this messaging that of of problem or challenge when instead we really need to lean more into the strengths and opportunities. Um, I, it, it sounds very foundational and trite even, but the, the use of language, I think, really makes a big difference. So when we're talking about, you know, academic challenges, I think a lot of it is not necessarily by virtue of the student who often is very capable and adept in, in a certain area of expertise. That's something we know in the autism community. There's strong hyper interests and areas in which folks really excel. But if the classes themselves are not designed in a manner to showcase that and to lean into uh, variations and assignments where folks can channel that passion and knowledge in unique ways, then then the student is compromised. And so that's, and I imagine we'll shift into some of those practical solutions. But um, I, my, my th- real thinking is, you know, per Lee's point, you know, if, if folks you know, make it to, to like anybody, not just autistic students, but any students, if you have, if you, you, you meet the threshold to get into college, there, there's an opportunity and it's consequently our opportunity as faculty, staff, practitioners, researchers to really figure out all the different channels to, to leverage those strengths and possibilities as much as we can. I, yeah. I could not agree more. I, I feel like it's an opportunity, but it's our responsibility. We've admitted the student and said they can get in here do we not have a responsibility to address the structural you know, obstacles for their success at our institutional level, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I think to build off of that, Heather, and what Brett said is also, you know, a lot of these structural issues are large, but a lot of them are also, you know, relatively smaller things that we can address. Uh, I regularly give a presentation to our staff and faculty about uh, supporting uh, neurodivergent students here at UK. And and I tell them throughout the presentation, the advice I'm giving you doesn't just apply to our neurodivergent students. It applies to all of our students. Mm-hmm. Things such as giving context about uh, and background about what we are teaching and about our policies and procedures, uh, all the way to just communicating information through multiple methods and media. So a lot of it is stuff, you know, that would benefit all of our students, not just our autistic or neurodivergent students. Thank you so much. Um, So let's move into emotional and social needs and supports that campuses can also provide in in that regard. Um, Lee, do you want to kick us off in that in that part? Yeah, um, you know, the social and emotional needs that neuro divergent or autistic students bring are 
really similar to the needs that neurotypical students bring to campus. They want to be respected and understood and acknowledged for the contributions that they can make to the community. Um, our students want to feel a sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it always should force us to ask, what are we doing to help students, especially those who've been marginalized, feel like they belong and matter to our communities? Most autistic students want to make friends. You know, they, they want to be successful and they want to be able to pursue their passions. How they go about seeking those things may look different from neurotypical approaches. And that's where a better understanding of common autistic characteristics is key. Um, you know, if, if someone in your community speaks a language different than the majority, you don't blame and ostracize them, right? You, right. you do two things. You learn to speak their language mm -hmm. and you encourage them to become more proficient in the majority language. And somewhere in between, communication improves and the community itself becomes more supportive of all types of diversity. Um, I often make the distinction between what I call large A accommodations and small A accommodations. And the large A accommodations are like the sort of um, you know, extended time on tests and distraction-free environment. Uh, and those are, those are accommodations that a disability services office can put in place. But the small A accommodations are really about creating environments where the broadest group of people can succeed and feel that sense of belonging. Um, so, you know, let's talk about orientation activities for, for a moment, um, because I think orientation is like, it's hell week for a lot of students who have sensory sensitivity. And I, you know, I look back on my own career as being someone who was responsible for orientation programs. And really, I just, I, I just want to cry because I feel like I was so insensitive, you know, to ask students who have sensory sensitivity to be in loud places, boisterous places, play fair, it's a great thing, unless you have a, a sensitivity to noise or bright lights. Um, the human knot, really <laughs> bad idea for anybody who does not feel comfortable being touched. Yeah. But we do these things all the time. And again, we're trying to meet the needs of the majority, the neurotypical, and all these neurodivergent students are standing on the sidelines saying, oh my God, like, what am I doing here? I've got to get out of here. This place is crazy. So, you know, how, how do we create environments that are supportive? You know, how do we create quiet spaces? How do we create smaller social opportunities so that these students have, have that runway, right? Where they can really take their time getting comfortable in the ways that maybe in high school they took for granted. Thank goodness COVID um, ended the human knot, at least on my campus. <laughs> <laughs> right. Goodbye. Good riddance to the human knot. Didn't get rid of awkward, uh, you know, those icebreakers that are awkward for everyone that no one likes. Yeah. No, you exactly. Your neighbor, right? Like, yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I always suggest do the name action alliteration one. I'm Jedi John. Simple. Uh, you learn yes. my name and it's something everyone can be comfortable with. I'm going to remember that forever now, John. John. <laughs> Should I call you that the rest of the podcast? <laughs> I'm going to do it. Oh, yeah. I love it. 
I love it. What what would other folks add about this uh, social and emotional kind of the the connectivity and the ability to find places and spaces of belonging? Like, I really like that component that you added, Lee. Well, something I did in developing my program um, first is I included mental health support um, Mm. for my students, which I think is a huge piece because as Lee was saying, navigating those social landscapes, navigating those really awkward everybody meet everybody, how college that first two weeks is like summer camp and um, just kind of having those supports built in. And then something else I did really was really important is that I wanted my program to be part of the campus. So it wasn't just on the second floor of Coughlin Hall here at Marquette where we live, um, being fully integrated into campus by meeting with the president, meeting with provost, meeting with VPs, uh, meeting with all the departments that were gonna have high touch with my students. So tutoring, writing center, obviously housing, even our police department, just in case, because um, apparently I'd like to do fire drills in the middle of the night and um, not tell me ahead of time so I can let my students know. Um, so we remember to check to check the stairwells um, because my students might be hiding there. Um, but just so that everyone's aware of what can we do to make things more inclusive? What can we do to make it more welcoming? What are we, what are we, what's our real goal? Um, like Lee said about the, the foreign language, I'm thinking about international students or students who don't come from typical American culture, right? And how that's also a change and the universities do a really good job of addressing that. So we should be considering what are we doing to level the playing field overall? Yeah, I'm thinking about Google Translate and all the language, like that That idea of translation is so powerful. And your, your point that you just made, Emily, about what we do for international students, absolutely spot on. And, and that's sort of when, when we built the program here at UK, what we were addressing as well was we had a lot of supports already. We wanted to address specifically that sense of belonging. And so when we built Nessie, that is what we were programming to. We uh, we decided to go with a model that does not charge students additional fees because we wanted to make the barriers access as low as possible. We also don't require a diagnosis to participate as well. what But what we specifically program to is basically a survival skills guide for surviving a neurotypical college campus, <coughs> excuse me, uh, while also, you know, providing that space where students can hang out with one another and belong with one another and not have to worry about, you know, uh, masking their autism or masking their neurodivergence, but give them a space where they can decompress and be themselves and so that's kind of what that that is where we decide to start uh here at uk with building that also mentioned too um in terms of uh relating to the social needs i think recognizing that and this was talked about earlier in terms of folks wanting community and friends and that may look in different ways among folks in the autistic community i think really leaning into extracurriculars and campus organizations and other spaces can be really viable from the standpoint of providing a structure, often um, more uh, deliberate way of engaging with peers who share the same passions, right? Uh, Like really focusing on the strengths and how to leverage them. Well, you know, if I love filmmaking and can participate in the filmmaking club and meet other people who share the same interest as me, as an autistic person, okay, there's a conversation piece, right? Likely we're going to find some points of connection and maybe there would be divergence in terms of what ultimately is the best Disney movie of all time. Clearly, uh, <laughs> I, I may have my own opinions as the person. It's Lion King. <laughs> 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 uh, top five, Emily, top five for me. But 
um, as, as the person with all the Disney stuff in the background. But ultimately, yeah. those extracurriculars are so vital in terms of creating those outlets for finding friends. For me, at, you know, starting community college, it was all the extracurriculars that I wouldn't have ever anticipated being so prominent in my in my education, but ultimately served as the mechanism for making friends based on loving the environment or um, or the news or student leadership or other things. So uh, mind you, we have to recognize that not everybody uh, in the autism community uh, feels comfortable in certain social situations and in certain spaces may be sensory overload or intimidating or have certain nuances that are hard to make sense of. But I think we need to continue to think of how we also re-envision those outlets to create points of, of connection, collaboration, community. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it's hard to make friends in, in general. It's certainly harder to make friends as you get older, but those campus organizations and, and events can be um, viable avenues. Um, and it doesn't require as much initiative on the student, especially if there's structured things unfolding in those spaces. I'm going to talk one more time. Uh, so like, like as Brett was saying, I think one of our crucial partnerships was with Student Life. Um, those student organizations have been awesome. We have an event every most Wednesdays, but Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights called Late, Mar Late Night Marquette that has activities for students to do from like 9 p.m. to like way past my bedtime. And what we did like partnering with them and saying, okay, how are you advertising? They were like, oh, it's trivia. Okay, but what's the topic? What's to be expected? And kind of making sure that all those avenues, especially like, those, com those communities that are supposed to be naturally important communities on campuses are also accessible. I love the student involvement push. That's, that is my kind of in, engaged, engaged college students and their connections are the ways that we can find those places of belonging. And um, so thank you for that. I think the social and emotional piece is really, is really key. Um, I am really curious about the, the, the research and all of the re recent studies. And um, Emily, you kind of alluded to a project you're working on with Brett. Um, Brett, can you provide some overview and then anything that we can reference in our links today, will, which will be useful tools for our college and university partners um, to use to inform their work? Absolutely. Well, bottom line, the research is emergent. It's minimal. Um, so when I started grad school seven years ago, you know, there were only a handful of journal articles that really focused on autistic college students or autism in higher education. And that's really a reflection of, well, um, you know, until the past decade, we weren't seeing, uh, we weren't recognizing the prominence of autistic college students on our campuses um, by virtue at the time, not as many programs existing. And certainly um, the autism support programs that um, that John and Emily were referring to, you know, we're, we're seeing many more of them now. And so consequently, there's a more visible presence on our campus campuses um, for, call, for autistic college students. But what the research had told us at the time is, well, if you were looking at any studies from 10 years ago or so, you wouldn't see many participants being autistic college students. It would be a lot of communicating about, right? So parents' mm -hmm. perspectives, uh, maybe staff or faculty perspectives, administrators, administrative perspectives um, focusing on the high school high schoolers intending to go to college and, and those transitions and all of that having value, no doubt. And we need to have a holistic picture of these various perspectives, but without the autistic college student perspective being elevated in the research, it really inhibits um, our full understanding of 
the, you know, we're talking about the academic, emotional, social challenges and opportunities. Well, who better to learn about it than from the autistic college students themselves? And gradually we're seeing more of that. We're seeing more of a focus on not just the academic part that gets a lot of attention and the accommodations and relationships with disability services. We need to attend to that, of course, but it's also as I mentioned, more of that holistic, right? How are, how are students making friends um, on college campuses? In what ways are they able to find majors that capitalize on their interests? What are their employment pathways? Um, what, uh, in what ways are their college experiences setting them up for that? Um, or gradually we're seeing more research that is is more holistic in nature, but another challenge too, and, and uh, this was discussed briefly earlier, but uh, we're not really always attending to the intersectionality of autistic college students, folks who identify as women and non-binary, people of color, um, international students, low-income students, LGBTQ+. And we know there's a lot of, as Emily talked about earlier with their program, the, um, the prominence of autistic LGBTQ folks. And um, so that's been, that's been unfortunate that a lot of the research has not been able to unveil that. And that's not always... Uh, by virtue of the researcher not trying, but in turn trying to gather those perspectives, but certain structures and um, and uh, experiences limiting those those opportunities from unfolding, and so the kind of the space that I've entered in here is uh, over recent years with my work, it's been one to outline what research does exist, what's the landscape, um, but but also to produce empirical work that. Um, really elevates autistic college students' perspectives. My dissertation was on that, and I'm starting to produce um, some journal articles related to that that are intended to serve a variety of different stakeholders. Um, and so really excited and, and proud of that, but also um, making it much larger scale. So Emily referred to Project PIECES, which uh, it's an acronym that stands for Post-Secondary Education Autistic College Students' Experiences of S Success, because we see like all of us are connected to autistic college students in a variety of ways, but how do they define success, right? As, as higher education folks, we might view success in traditional ways, right? Are you, are you graduating in a quote unquote reasonable amount of time? Are you um, getting good grades? But it's, we know for all students, it's a lot more than that, right? It's, are you able to make friends? Are you taking care of your wellness and mental health? Are you, uh, participating in activities? Are you feeling a sense of pride in yourself, in your identities, in your intersectional identities um, outside of and in concert with autism? Are you finding a job? Are you connecting with folks? So what we've designed is a, a survey that um, is uh, kind of a nationwide survey. It's for undergraduate autistic college students. Eventually over time, we'd like to expand it. And it's really vast in trying to really enable them to define what is success for you? What factors contribute to success? In what ways could colleges be redesigned in ways that uh, really favor um, the different skills and opportunities that you bring to the table? And um, we're really hoping to, to continue to gather more insights on that. And this will be a longitudinal survey where we'll follow students uh, over the years as well. But all that to say with the research, the landscape is expanding. Thankfully, there are more folks in this space. There are more autistic researchers in this space. Um, not as many that I've seen quite quite in the United States, um, just among the uh, circles that I occupy, a lot of folks um, overseas as well um, who are producing great work. And, and I am seeing in just the past year or two, a lot more folks who are 
um, autistic scholars, not all of them are from higher ed uh, programs or backgrounds like me, but from other fields who are lending really valuable insights into what autism looks like across different disciplines, um, across other uh, identities, um, and, and most importantly, really recognizing that we have an important, um, this is an important time for, for us to, to use our platforms and our spaces for good and to work in concert with our neurotypical colleagues to produce work that is holistic, that is strengths-based in nature, that changes the paradigm and ultimately is pragmatic, right? I could produce a, a lot of different research uh, studies, but if it wasn't aimed to actually be implemented, if we're not talking with our, communicating with our practitioner colleagues, then it's all for naught, right? It's, we're, we're just talking in silos. A lot of the work that I've seen and, um, and, that I've engaged with, it's not always in higher ed circles, right? It's autistic folks uh, and autistic scholarship being pr produced for autism journals, disability journals, other disciplines as well. That all has merit. I've contributed to those spaces as well. What we need to do more of is publishing in higher ed and student affairs journals. And that's where, from a disciplinary standpoint, that's where I'm biased and I want to be, and I am in those spaces where we really need to be communicating with the practitioners at our colleges and universities so they know what tools they can implement um, because otherwise we're you know we're talking in circles we need to be communicating ac across different spaces and that's what I really valued with what um, Emily was talking about a few minutes ago in terms of um, their program working with student life and and really making sure that these are collaborative relationships change doesn't happen in a silo it happens uh, across a network so um, and all of this research extends to College Autism Network, and we produce uh, monthly webinars uh, where we have presenters talking about their research. We have a listserv where we've, over the past five years, uh, we've built more than 600 people on our College Autism Network Virtual Association Scholars listserv, which I've been very proud of, and it allows folks to share word about their research studies, get participants, get insights, um, sh share scholarship. It's a burgeoning space. It's a space that totally thrills me. And more importantly, we're, we're, we we collectively are the pioneers. We are going to change the conversation about autism in higher education. So let's do the good work. Yes. <laughs> There's the cheer from Lee. Uh, yeah. Um, Absolutely. You know, uh, the, like the, when we started the College Autism Summit, this was our sixth one. Um, you, you know, one of the, the, the key goals was giving space for uh, um, practitioners and researchers to yeah. talk to one another and really influence each other's work because that wasn't happening. But here's the thing. I think this is really um, <clears throat> important to understand kind of contextually why we're so excited about project pieces. Um, and it's because, as, as Brett said, the, 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 the research has been kind of piecemeal um, as as the autism awareness movement has really caught on there's a lot more interest among graduate students uh, in doing their a research project or a thesis or dissertation around an autistic population so what happens is about once a week I get a request someone has found me through can I get a request from someone who says I'm a master student or I'm a doctoral student and I'm doing my dissertation on autistic student success in college um, and I wonder if I need to interview autistic um, students um, can you send out this invitation to participate in my survey or do one of my interviews now I I could put this invitation on the list serve 
And then Emily and John and about 140 other people will get this invitation. Another, another researcher wants to interview my autistic students. Yeah. Now it's added to my workload because I've got to recruit them. And honestly, they don't want to do it. Yeah. because they've got other things they, they're yeah. sick of talking about being autistic and you, you know and I mean these requests are you know they're sincere they're important but they are um it's a flood right <laughs> and so you know what I tell these researchers is well if you can incentivize it with like mm. a gift card or payment you might be able to get this uh, uh, get a critical mass but the problem is until they get a critical mass, you can't get this research funded. The N isn't big enough. The sample size isn't big enough. So Project Pieces is really about trying to create a critical mass um, as, a, as a database, something like an iPads or like the leadership study database where you have thousands yeah. of people already in the database. And then those researchers can tap that database to get a lot of really useful information and not go th through this. I'm a researcher. I need people to interview. Could you ask the program directors so they could ask their students? Because that gets old, as you know, Emily and John, I'm sure can tell you. It really does. Stop asking me, Lee. <laughs> right. So I don't. I don't send them on anymore. Oh, I feel bad. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll just add too, because I appreciate you mentioning that, Lee, in terms of what the hopes are of, of project pieces. We want to create something that is, you know, broadly accessible so that folks can can glean on these insights so that we're able to track some students from year to year. So we know what their pathways are. That's a big challenge in um, the community college world that I'm also engaged with is we don't always know students' pathways from community college and thereafter. So this will hopefully illuminate those uh, trajectories as well, um, and and I'll and I'll continue to say like I mean I'm I'm one of those researchers too where I am tapping people and asking for like can you can you participate spread the word we there's value in that there's there's merit particularly based on the the nuances of particular inquiries that cannot necessarily always be addressed in broad context but that is the the goal with project pieces because it is very encompassing of a variety of different domains that it will enable a lot of uh, researchers to, to be able to tap into that. But it's gonna take time in building that infrastructure. So we're at the the uh, nascent of it. We've got national funding. We are uh, offering $25 gift cards to eligible uh, participants. And um, we're very we're very excited about it. And also really proud that it's a, a team consisting of researchers, practitioners, and self-advocates. Um, so it's been very, much where we're relying on each other's strengths and, and unique perspectives across different disciplines too. So that's the promotional piece that I'll I'll, I'll conclude at this juncture. But we, we feel the, the research landscape is changing. It's happening very rapidly. And ultimately, it just comes down to getting in the hands of, of folks who, who need and should uh, check out this work because um, until you have that exposure, there's never gonna be acceptance. So we need to we need to lean into that more. Yeah. yeah, I I absolutely agree. And I'm so grateful for you sharing that overview because I think this is the piece, right? Like we need to be able to give, no pun intended. Um, this is the piece that we need to be able to give practitioners and faculty and graduate students and improving their kind of under broad understanding. Um, I want to turn before we get to that question about what advice we would give. I, I do want to ask a bit about self-advocacy because you mentioned that a couple of times. 
Um, and I think about college students in general, right? Like understanding, leaving home, missing supportive parents and guardians, um, and then maybe being at greater risk of being intentionally harmed. So how can we promote that self-advocacy and help-seeking behaviors among our autistic and uh, neurodivergent students? Um, so John, I'm going to have you kick us off on that one. Uh, sure. So first of all, recommendation for the audience uh, to review the journal article, Test et al.'s Framework of Self-Advocacy for Students with Disabilities. Mm. Very good overview of sort of this laddered level of how do you become a self-advocate through college? Because college is really that last big safety yeah. net where you have, uh, where you have people like student affairs professionals who are there to look out for you and support you. Now, we can build out that safety net a bit more with uh, neurodiversity-friendly employers. CAN really does a lot of good work with that. But ultimately, you it, it's important you know, to explain to students, and sometimes also you have to explain to their parents, that you are at the end of that point where you, know, where you will have these supports. And so you need to be able to advocate for yourself in your field with your employers in your daily life. Um, and so that's why, you know, I push that. But I think also, you know, there is um, there is also a need to develop help-seeking behavior. Um, I am an autistic person who went through college and now runs an autism support program. Um, and so there are more and more of us. And one of the areas that we're realizing, you know, we have to take another look at is how we is how we educate about developing interpersonal relationships and interpersonal romantic relationships, because we have to move from we, we've moved over the past couple of years from like a compliance model, like a don't do this to not commit a Title IX violation to more of a bystander intervention model. But, you know, as the emerging research is showing, we need to move past that towards also a more affirming model because we have a lot of uh, survivors of sexual misconduct and mm -hmm. sexual violence mm -hmm. uh, who are um, autistic or members of the autism spectrum, particularly among uh, historically marginalized identities, uh, which we also, you know, need to work into that as well. So I think that, you know, if you ask what keeps me up at night, it's that. The other thing that keeps me up at night is those co-occurring disabilities, a lot of which are mental health based. So we do have, you know, students who may have, uh, may have used up a lot more resiliency skills and a lot more of that resiliency bandwidth than other students who may find themselves in crisis more. And that's where it's important, you know, not just to build that community of students, but also build supports for those students. Um, our autism support program didn't actually start in our disability resource center. It started in our case management office because uh, we were noticing that we had students, that we were seeing quite a few of our uh, autistic students who were coming in and, you know, experiencing mental health crises that we then do postvention for and try to support them, but they were missing that sense of belonging. And so that's kind of where that started. And when I moved over into disability services, I kind of brought it over with me because, you know, we have funding that we can actually devote to, um, to students with disabilities that's earmarked for that. Um, but, you know, that's one of the reasons why we started this program. 
Um, but I think overall, you know, just keeping an extra eye on these students is really, if I can give you, you know, one, uh, one thing you can do to promote this today is just check in more with these students mm. and check in with how they're doing. That's really powerful. Brett, what would you add? Yeah, I would offer lots of snaps to what John said. And I think it's an iterative process, self-advocacy. If you're looking at it from the student lens, it does not necessarily happen overnight. And I think that requires practitioners uh, across all different parts of the campus to recognize that folks' entry points in terms of embracing, not only embracing their autism identity and experience, but also being able to find ways to uh, attain the needs that, that they have, uh, attain the supports that they need to be successful. It, it, it takes time. Um, I know for myself it did too. Um, and, and I think everybody's journey is different. Um, I, I, I kind of laughed, uh, chuckled a little bit when John mentioned the test at all article, because I use that as the theoretical framework for a, a journal article that will be debuting very shortly um, in the journal of first year experience and students in transition. It's on self-advocacy. It's a piece of my dissertation. So I feel uh, very tethered to, to that and, and really recognizing that there's a lot of different stages that students go through. And consequently, um, there are a variety of different considerations that practitioners should have, including the notion of you know, navigating those relationships with parents who are often very well-intentioned, um, if assuming they're involved in their children's lives, um, but perhaps overstep boundaries or aren't sure of, of in what ways they can engage or communicate. And unfortunately, that positions a lot more um, effort or work prior to students' college years to be able to learn how to advocate for themselves by the time they get to college, yeah. right? And this applies to not just autistic college students, but all, I mean, think of first-year students and how there's a lot of uncertainty and not knowing how to navigate things. And, and it's not necessarily about pointing blame it's more of trying to figure out mechanisms so that students feel more self-assured about themselves whatever identities they hold autism or not but figuring out how to ask for help knowing that it's okay to ask for help what comes down to is that self-recognition and being able to figure out the right mechanism to be able to to get supports um collaborative problem solving is a tool that a lot of autism support programs utilize and is uh, incorporated in other spaces. It's all about figuring out how to navigate things with the student. Uh, it gives them a sense of agency in the process. Um, I think certainly in terms of self-advocacy, it comes down to students being aware of different avenues they can engage with to um, to learn about their autism identity if they if they're interested in that right so there's the autistic self-advocacy network which is has very huge reach in our autism community um and and being patient with oneself that you know what for for me autism is salient because it defines me personally and a heck of a lot professionally too but that didn't happen overnight it wasn't until the end of my community college experience that I was uh, open about my autism and then actively explored that and then channeled into my research in grad school. For a lot of folks, it you know their trajectories may be vastly different depending on diagnoses and other identities um, and, and how stigma may play a role. So self-advocacy is, is something that I think we need to elevate more broadly on our college campuses to support all of our students. And when it comes to autistic students who may have perhaps a, a need an additional la layer of support and in, in terms of like 
you know, having a guide, like from, to know like where certain places are on campus and, or to have someone provide an introduction, because maybe I feel a little anxious in new situations, but maybe figuring out phrases or tools that I can turn to that are a little bit more comfortable. Um, it's a, it's a whole wide uh, assortment of different uh, components that we need to uh, be accounting for. So I, I realize I'm perhaps a bit verbose here, but I want to illustrate that the the onus falls on the student to 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 advocate for themselves, but it shouldn't be where it's just on them. It's a whole different. It's a whole network of different supports to be able to um, honor that experience. That was great. That was absolutely fabulous. And I I consider this. I mean, I do think that this is an example of something that that resonates. I have a 17 year old who's getting ready to go to college. And like, as you were saying that I was like, oh my gosh, am I building the skills that, that they need to be able to advocate for themselves? Um, and I work in this field, right? Like that's the other part of this. Oh. So I would love to, um, to finish with advice and some resources or other kinds of things we should be kind of thinking about. Um, and, and Lee, you mentioned there's a, there's a, there's a, is there a, is it Netflix or Amazon or show that we should all be watching uh, during as we were thinking about this this uh, conversation earlier? So tell us a little bit about advice to give to practitioners, faculty, grad students, et cetera. Yeah, well, it's so interesting that over the last few years, the number of um, sort of coded or obviously autistic characters have emerged on TV and they've kind of come from being supporting roles to being center. Uh, and wow. so- um, at the College of Autism Summit last week, we our closing speaker was the creator, Jason Kadams, and the cast of the Amazon series, uh, As We See It. And it's, just a, it's a really terrific show. It's one season, eight episodes. Um, maybe there'll be a second season. I don't know. But um, a great uh, bit of homework for anybody who wants to just kind of learn what some of the challenges are that are faced by autistic young adults. Watch these eight episodes and you will learn a lot. The actors themselves are autistic and it was really just a, an honor to hear from them about how they kind of made sense of being autistic and playing someone who's autistic and, and kind of reconciling those characteristics. Um, but, you know, more broadly, my advice is, is you know, and, and I think what, what gives me some hope is just that, you know, student affairs, we have always led higher education in areas of diversity and inclusion, right? So from supporting women in higher ed, BIPOC students, LGBTQ students, um, it's always been student affairs at the helm, leading our institutions. And, and we can do that with neurodiversity too. So I, I can't stress enough the importance of outreach and training and education to create a truly autism friendly campus environment. Um, you know, so one resource that, that I like to pitch is our um, CAN Consultants Collective, uh, you know, a group of people, these three are, are um, among them, who are available to work with campuses to help um, help do training and uh, for faculty, staff, and, and students, uh, because it's a vulnerable population, as Brett said, um, and we have to figure out how to meet autistic students more than halfway, and we do that through really understanding autism, what it looks like, what it is, what it isn't, um, and what sorts of interactions are the most effective. Um, so you can find more uh, about the Consultants Collective on our website. I'll stop there. I love it. 
I love it. Um, we are out of time. And I, so I'd love to hear in our final thoughts from each of you, any other resources that you would want to share and then any um, particular thoughts that you have this episode, you know, our podcast is called student affairs now. So what are you thinking, pondering, questioning, excited about troubling now? Um, and then if you would like to share how people can connect with you, um, that would be great too. So Lee, I'll have you kick us off for final thoughts and, and, uh, and then move on to the rest of you. Um, yeah, you know, I think on, on a lot of campuses, uh, so there's about 120 sort of formally designated autism support programs that are campus-based. Mm. Um, sometimes they have good connections with student affairs. Sometimes they're very isolated from student affairs. Those are critical partnerships. Um, so if you have a program like that on your campus, reach out to them and say, how can we partner to really support all of our students, really create a neurodiverse um, environment. Uh, and I think <clears throat> if you don't have one of those programs, that's that's okay. You still have people who wanna learn. You have a lot of people with ex personal experience with autism um, and start creating an, a training initiative on your campus, you know, do webinars, bring in a consultant, um, do a book group, do a TV watching group, you know, student affairs, we're good at this. Like we do this really well and we just need to do it with these students in mind. Thank you so much, Lee. Uh, Brett, tell us a bit about what your final thoughts are as you're kind of thinking about this episode today. Yeah, I think the thought that continues to resonate in my mind is the, the notion of collaboration and where we are communicating with one another about these issues. I, I often say in my work that I feel a very deep sense of responsibility to my community, to my work, to be able to uh, illuminate new perspectives, to work with folks who have complementary areas of expertise so that the autistic college student experience is more prominent in our minds. But ultimately, this is everyone's responsibility. It's not just it's not just those of us whose work is deeply connected to autism, and that's why I really always appreciate like what Lisa said earlier and what all of us were communicating about is that the 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 strategies that we we may employ that are useful for our autistic neurodivergent called students are going to be effective often for everybody. There's going to be further nuances and things to attend to um, with the autism community, but if, if we look at it from a, a more holistic um, and uh, representative standpoint, I, I think that can be very helpful. I, I would say I want the takeaway to be that likely, uh, you know, student affairs practitioners are, are very adept in, in being uh, just uh, resourceful and in, in, in making connections and drawing on um, their, their tools and expertise to be able to provide good experiences for, for students. And I think we need to lean into that further in, in thinking across campus spaces, working with autism programs, should they exist? If they don't exist, working with disability service offices, but also creating events and opportunities for autistic students to be elevated more saliently on a college campus, right? A panel, right? We don't want to create things that are tokenist or ways that marginal, further marginalize or, or don't honor the experiences, but we need to work in collaboration with our autistic uh, campus partners, students, faculty, if there are any out autistic faculty on your campus, like, wow, they, and, and if they're interested in being able to share their experiences, I think that's something to lean into. Same with our practitioner colleagues. I think that's, um, 
I, I tend to be long-winded, but that's what I'll say for now. <laughs> um, feel free to connect with me. Um, my email is uh, b-n-a-c-h-m-a-n at u-a-r-k dot e-d-u. I'm still trying to figure out my email. It's relatively new. Um, and if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's uh, B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And uh, definitely follow all of us at Calls Autism Network. We, we'd love to engage with you in, in a variety of different ways. I love it. And participate in our study, please. Project pieces. Look, look at the show notes for more information. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Emily, what are your final thoughts? What would you like to leave folks with? Um. Okay, so personally, my brain makes it about me. Um, and I was thinking, what am I? So the students that are in my program, I know that they're having a good experience on campus, but also my program that compulsory if you're autistic or neurodivergent. So what am I doing from imagining I have a campus that doesn't have a program? So what am I doing to ensure that those partnerships that just because they're cool with me and the students on the list or whatever, is it actually happening for all? Is it happening across campus? And I think for me, like that's my next step and thinking from that perspective for people whose campuses don't have programs, what are you doing? Because students are there, whether you have a program or not, they're autistic and neurodivergent students on your campus. What are you doing to make sure that they're having an amazing experience just like all the other students on your campus? Oh, and you can find me on LinkedIn, um, Emily Rackloff. Awesome, thank you so much. That was, uh, that was a great, that was a great summary because I do think it is everybody's responsibility. John, it's your your last. Yep. What what would you like to leave us with? I think just first and foremost, students need to be uh, need to be you know at the uh, at the center of this conversation. Uh, we describe our program as a, as staff led but student directed. Mm. We discuss what students want to learn about, and that is what we program towards. And so we make sure, you know, that the students definitely have a voice in how our program operates, how it expands. And I think, you know, whatever you are doing on your campus, you need to talk to your students first because they are the ones that are going to know what your individual campus needs are. Um, if you want to get a hold of me, um, you can reach me at john.caldora at uky.edu. Uh, or via Twitter, I'm at John Caldora, uh, or through the uh, CAN uh, Consultants Collective that uh, Lee mentioned earlier. Awesome. I am so grateful to all of you for your time today. Thank you so much for sharing your contributions to the conversation and um, to Student Affairs Now. Also sending heartfelt appreciation to our dedicated behind the scenes producer, Nat Ambrosi. Thanks, Nat, for making us look and sound amazing. Um, if you are listening today and you're not already receiving our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at studentaffairsnow.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage and add your name to our MailChimp list. And while you're there, you can check out our archives. Um, if, if you found this conversation to be helpful, please share on social media with your colleagues or students, if you're a faculty member, um, and subscribe, it really helps us, um, build these conversations and reach more folks. So thanks again also to our sponsors. So our first sponsor is Vector Solutions, formerly EverFi. How will your institution rise to reach today's socially conscious generation? These students report commitments to safety, well-being, and inclusion as important as academic rigor when selecting a college. And it's time to reimagine the work of student affairs as an investment, not an expense. For over 20 years, Vector Solutions, which now includes the Campus Prevention Network, or formerly EverFi, 
has been the partner of choice for 2000 plus colleges, universities, and national organizations. With nine efficacy studies behind our courses, you can trust and have full confidence that you're using the standard of care for student safety, well-being, and inclusion. Transform the future of your institution and community you serve. Learn more at vectorsolutions.com slash studentaffairsnow. Our second sponsor for today is Simplicity. Simplicity is the global leader in student services technology platforms with state-of-the-art technology that empowers institutions to make data-driven decisions specific to their goals. A true partner to the institution, Simplicity supports all aspects of student life, including, but not limited to, career services and development, student conduct and well-being, student success and accessibility services. To learn more, visit Simplicity or simplicity.com or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Um, if you could take a moment and visit our website and click on sponsors link to learn more, that would be amazing. Um, again, I'm Heather Shea. Thanks to all of our listeners and everybody who is watching and, and listening. Make it a great week, everyone. Mm -hmm.